Mark 12:18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. We're in Mark chapter 12 this morning, beginning in verse 18. This morning we gather in celebration of resurrection, right? It's Easter, the celebration of resurrection morning. But this is the reality, actually, every celebration service. Every Sunday morning, our weekly celebration is a service of celebration and remembrance of the gospel, the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. And this morning we remember simply again with tucked in shirts, nice dresses, we remember that he's risen. He's risen indeed. This morning we're not only called to celebrate and remember the resurrection, we're also called, according to Scripture, to be confronted with a question of the resurrection. As we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning, we see Jesus confronted by a group of religious leaders, and they're coming to him in an attempt to present uh, the possibility of resurrection as a ridiculous farce, okay? As Jesus' authority is being challenged, continuing to be challenged, he again shows not that he doesn't have authority. Rather, he shows the folly of unbelief and the power of God to those who will receive the promise of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in the midst of the congregation today, that you would continue to work, that the holding up of your truth, the praises of your people, the gathering of the saints in the variety of ways that we've come and the different weeks that we've had and the distractions that are around us. Lord, I pray that you would speak And you would speak with a clarity that only your spirit can bring to the heart with the gift of faith. That we would not only hear with our ears, but we would hear with hearts of faith and receive, be changed. That your word and spirit would work in the midst of your people, in our hearts, so that we would be transformed by the hope of the reality of the resurrection. 
Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for these things in your name. Amen. This morning, we're, first of all, in our passage, confronted with Sadducees. We see them in verse 18. The Sadducees came to him. These Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection. They asked him a question. We'll look at the question in just a moment, but our passage begins with these Sadducees coming to him, and they intended to show the foolishness of Jesus's position regarding the resurrection. Our passage is the second in a series of factions, three factions that come to Jesus from the Sanhedrin to approach Jesus with with a similar set of questions, all intended to trap him all intended to show that he has no real authority to be speaking and doing these things in the temple courts. This is a series of questions that come after a a group of the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish ruling body in Jerusalem. They had challenged the authority of Jesus back in Mark chapter 11. If you haven't been with us during the course of the series, I encourage you, go back and read that. And, And in C, today's question being one that comes out of that challenge back in Mark chapter 11. The Sanhedrin is a group, a a, a set of rulers made up of basically three factions, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Last week we saw the Pharisees along with the Herodians. What are they doing there? Saw the Pharisees come and ask a question today. It's the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the power players in Jerusalem particularly. Their power came from their association with the temple and the priests in Jerusalem. They were a sort of aristocracy that were often found colluding with Rome in an attempt to maintain the power that they had in the city and in the region, all right? So these are the power players, the upper cross, the elite of Jerusalem coming to Jesus, and they have a question. There are a few specific distinctions that are worthy of note, very relevant to the question that they bring to Jesus between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and really, honestly, between the Sadducees and the majority of the people of Israel. There's a distinction taking place here. Even in Acts 23, in verse 8, it says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. You see, there's a distinction, a theological distinction between the parties who share seats in the Sanhedrin. A couple of the notes of distinctions, obviously we've already seen the Pharisees believe in angels and demons. And apparently the Sadducees at least de-emphasized those spiritual things. The Pharisees emphasize uh, divine sovereignty in history and among the people. The Sadducees emphasized human free will and simply the working out of history and politics and in religion and the behaviors of the people. Pharisees have a a more open canon of Scripture. Not only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but also the Psalms and other wisdom literature, the histories and the prophets and an ongoing oral tradition were all authoritative and, and, and were to speak for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, on the other hand, acknowledged only the Torah. Only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were their scriptural authority. And then we have the Pharisees who acknowledged the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees who didn't. This is the first time Jesus has specifically interacted with the Sadducees in the Gospel of Mark. 
And it's a very pointed and contentious interaction. Jesus is, you're not going to see him interacting with him very many times, especially if this is how it's going to go. All right? We'll see that Jesus has a very clear rebuke for the Sadducees in our passage. He actually rebukes them twice, sort of frames his response to them with a rebuke. In verse 24, it says, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And at the end, he closes it with simply, I mean, it was kind of awkward, right? When Bill finished reading, just, you are wrong. (laughs) So ends the reading of God's word, right? Why does Jesus have such a vehement reaction with the Sadducees and their challenge to resurrection? Why, Why does he frame this in this way? We asked the same thing last week. Jesus's approach is so often come to me, right? Right? He's always he's drawing people to himself and calling people to himself and, and res, re, responding to them, not with rebuke, but rather with a call up to greater faith, right? Over and over again. Why this vehement reaction? Well, think about it. Think about the life and ministry of Jesus. Resurrection is Jesus' only hope. He's been saying that for many chapters now. We have to remember Jesus' repeated statements of his intention for his life. Since Mark chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, here's what he says. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. One. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Which is what we're watching right now. And be killed. And the Sadducees, yeah, we agree. All of those things very well might happen. In fact, that's our plan for you. But this last thing that you speak of, that doesn't even exist. You see why Jesus has a vehement reaction? Because the passage continues, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. This is Jesus' hope. Resurrection is the hope of the Messiah. The resurrection so often challenged both by Jesus' contemporaries and ours. It's the plain hope and the plain teaching of Jesus. It's his hope and ours. Jesus suffering, rejected, dying, and resurrected. But the position of the Sadducees is that there is no resurrection. So let's consider that. What does that look like, no resurrection? What do the Sadducees believe happened then? I mean, people die. People do suffer those three things. People do suffer. People are rejected. People do die. When the body perishes, they thought, so too does the soul. And that's it. You die, and that's about it. The primary image for death is not resurrection, but Sheol, a place of death and decay. There's, there's no life there, is the argument of the Sadducees. It might be a better question if you're familiar with the Old Testament to ask, where does the concept of resurrection really even come from? There are many allusions to life after death throughout the scriptures, but it should be noted that most of those allusions to life outside of death come outside of the Torah. Can you see what's starting to go on here? 
If the Torah are the scriptures of the Sadducees, and most of those allusions take place outside of the Torah, there's a bit of a contention that's going to rise up. The Pharisees and the others would point to to Enoch, an example from inside the Torah, but also to Elijah, an example from outside the Torah, as two examples in Israel's history of those who are presented in the Old Testament as having life, even though they don't walk on the earth. The argument there is there's some sort of life beyond simply a, a, a walking around the earth sort of life that Enoch could walk with God, that Elijah could be called up to be with God. So surely there is a resurrection and life for those who die, goes the argument. And so many other arguments and such a belief in the resurrection by the time in which Jesus finds himself in this temple on this day is actually the majority opinion of the people. It's the majority belief system of the Jews at the time, but not the Sadducees in all of their power and elitism. Jesus himself presents that view, even as he he calls himself as the source of resurrection power. He agrees with the Pharisees, and he agrees with the people, to the degree that in John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is, of course, what he says in the context of the raising from the dead of his friend Lazarus. And this happens not long before he enters Jerusalem. It happened just in in Bethany, just outside of the city. No wonder Jesus had stirred up such a controversy. He comes to Jerusalem, the, the, the seat of the power of the Sadducees, and he raises someone from the dead and proclaims that he is the resurrection and the life. And the New Testament goes on to affirm the resurrection in the most adamant of terms. Essentially agreeing with Jesus, the Sadducees are wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection chapter, so often preached on Easter Sunday. It says, and if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. You see, the Christ would have been right that he was suffering, dying, suffering, rejected, and dying, but he would be wrong about his rising. Then those who have fallen asleep have still perished. Even the Christ would have simply perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But so was the position of the Sadducees. Paul here in 1 Corinthians is using the same logic of Jesus that Jesus uses to confront the question of the Sadducees. The life and the hope of our God is not restricted to this life only. The promise of our God is for the living. Friends, it is one of the reasons why the conclusion of our messages, so very often at Cross Point Coast, are not, here are three steps for a better way to live. Friends, if that's all that this word had was good advice for a better life, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But we have a testimony and a hope, not good advice 
for living, but a hope for everlasting. This moment and forevermore life in the Christ who is risen. So let's look at the question. Let's look at the question. Beginning verse 19, the Sadducees say this, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. All right, simple teaching, kind of confusing today, not really how we operate. We have other retirement plans and other services by which we could take care of one another, but understand the context and the culture, the way that you care for one another is in the household. And if you want to see that, that the possessions that you have don't just simply disappear and dissipate and that the widow has some means to take care of herself in her age, she needs an heir. She needs a son who could inherit the land and inherit the wealth that had come through the father and, and that he would then grow up and care for her and care for the household and perpetuate the name. And so... The Sadducees come up with this ridiculous scenario. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third, likewise, the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, and you can see them laughing. <laughs> In the resurrection, you know, when will they rise again, Right? Whose wife will she be? Gotcha. Right? They think they've really got Jesus. For the seven had her as wife. What he's speaking of is the leverite, leverate marriage, the idea of the marriage of the brother-in-law for the perpetuation of the name and the care for the widow, the establishment of the household, and the continuance of the inheritance one commentator, James Edwards, says leverate marriage was a compensatory social custom designed to prevent intermarriage of the Jews and Gentiles and to preserve the honor and property within a family line in cases where a woman's husband was deceased. It's actually an, an ingenious plan for the care of the whole of the community. Men, women, children, the Sadducees, they're messing with Jesus. They're using this social custom and this plan, and they're creating an absurd scenario to prove the, the common sense ridiculousness and chaos that the resurrection would create if there was such a thing as an afterlife. I mean, given our social customs, there's no way a resurrection would work. It's common sense. The problem is in the common misconception that life after death was simply a continuation of the order of the ways of this life. Yeah, if you apply common sense over and over again, it's going to, to run into a problem when that which is common is interrupted with something new, with something different, with something miraculous. And this is a common misconception. This is something that Jesus and the apostles would describe in the resurrection. Consider this. Again, from 1 Corinthians 15, this time in verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. 
what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Do you see? That which is common is interrupted by something miraculous and different. So if you simply try to apply common sense to the resurrection, our answer is, it doesn't happen. And if it did, it'd be ridiculous. But what we understand about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 is it's not simply a continuation of the common things. It's sown in weakness and it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body and it's raised with a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body is the argument of the apostles. Life after the resurrection is unique. It is not simply to be compared as a continuation of this life. It has many similarities with this life. But it is imperishable. It is glorious. It's powerful and it's spiritual. All things that you can't say of this life. Resurrection life is a continuation of this life, but it is not merely so. It's a glorified life. And so the issues of this life and our way of thinking about this life and our common sense applied to this life along with the absurd scenario presented by the Sadducees, simply doesn't fit the reality of the resurrection. If it was a simple continuation of this life, then the the Sadducees kind of have a point, right? Whose wife is she? But it's not like that, Jesus is about to tell them. In 1 Corinthians 15, again, it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I think we could argue neither can the ways and the orders of life on this side of the fall simply inherit eternal life. But there is a new way. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. This life is perishable. Along with all that is perishing in this life, so too will perish the myriad issues and complexities of life in a fallen world. And friends, I'm relieved. I mean, think about it. Not only are we raised and we get to live forever, living forever with all the complexities of life today isn't a gift. It's an exhaustion. Imagine carrying the stress that you woke up with this morning forever. Imagine all the complexities and decision-making that take place in a fallen world and, and waking up to the news like we do, over and over again, forever. But that's not resurrection life. There's an interruption and a change of things. The myriad issues and complexities of life are replaced with something gloriously eternal. The Sadducees' question is similar to asking, do I really want to live forever? I'm 40 years old and my back already hurts and I can't see anymore. Do I really want to live forever? Oh, praise God, there will be an interruption. There will be a change, a transformation. You can see the issue is continuing to think about the resurrection in terms of perishable life. And so Jesus answers. Look at verse 24 with me. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? (laughs) Because you know neither the Scriptures 
nor the power of God. Do you hear that? Wrong. I mean, he just doesn't say that to anybody else. This is the reason you are wrong. It's interesting, the word wrong is planao, all right? It, it, we use the word planet today for that word. It means to wander about, to move about seemingly without purpose, to stray from the truth is the image that Jesus is giving them. You're wandering about, and it's no, it, it's no surprise that your application of your common sense would not work for this miraculous thing of which the scriptures speak and that is the result of the power of God. Do you see that? You're wandering about like a planet. Your whole orbit of wisdom, Sadducees, is off and wandering. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus could not have stated the error more emphatically or offensively. He's not just stating a simple truth. He is offering an offense to their pride. There are two things that any Sadducee particularly prided himself in that though they, them, they themselves are expert scripture readers and, and Torah purists. And he tells them, you don't know the scriptures. And as the power of God, they themselves thought themselves gatekeepers of the power of God in the temple and his presence and power there. Friends, they're the scripture people. And they're the power people. And he tells them, you don't know the scriptures. and You don't know the power of God. All this, at this essential point, at this point of the scriptures and the power of God is where they failed. They failed to discern the power of God in relation to his ability to keep covenant promises. And so we get his answer. Verse 26. And for the dead being raised, you have not read in the book of Moses? Your scriptures? You see, he doesn't have to go to Elijah. He doesn't have to go to the prophets. He goes right to their scriptures. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and of God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You're wandering off in a remarkable fashion. Jesus' argument is simple. God's promise is to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he confirms his promise to each of these. If these are dead, what good is God's promise? Not, not what good is God's promise to them. What good is God's word? What kind of power does God have if he is simply keeping a promise to dead men who never received what was promised? In Exodus chapter 6, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Do you see this? God's covenant was given to give the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not merely to their descendants, 
Jesus is saying that the promise still stands. And if the promise still stands for them, they must be alive to receive the promise. Because he's still their God. It's an incredible argument. It's pretty rock solid. If we know the scriptures and we trust in the power of God to keep covenant, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will yet receive the promise through the resurrection of the dead. Hebrews 11 picks up on the same argument. Speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in Hebrews 11 it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They believed them. They knew them as covenant. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Not people with a homeland yet. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He's not ashamed. He's no liar. His covenant is still true, and he's standing up strong in his covenant. And he'll keep it for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it will be fulfilled in the heavenly kingdom when they receive what is promised, an eternal land from which they will never be driven out. God is not ashamed to be their God because they're not dead. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. God's promise elevates the standing of humanity from those who are perishing. See, I'm perishing. You're perishing. My back and my eyesight tell me so. My anxiety in the morning in the news tells us so. We're perishing. But the promise of God enters in and elevates humanity from those who are perishing to those who have received a promise. A promise that can only be fulfilled by those to those who are not perishing. And so I move from one who is perishing to one who won't. One who won't. You see, my life, my resurrection, the resurrection of the people of God is linked to the integrity and power of God to keep his promise. Friends, this is resurrection hope. A genuine, sure hope. Hebrews 11 says it this way, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, nor will he be shown to be shameful to have made the covenant. For he's prepared a city for them. Friends, all who are in Christ await the same city. So much of what is wrong with this world results from our failure to discern the Scriptures and to discern the power of God. We, we're the Sadducees. We're the same. We strive and rage in this world to carve out a place for ourselves, don't you? Don't we? We're raging, laboring for ourselves, and we're wait, raging and we're laboring for our inheritance, that our name would continue on, that our children would be 
cared for, but we fail to see and remember the promise of God, that there is a hope that's already secure. There's a place, a heavenly city, that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us by the power of God. What's required for us is not to struggle in this life or to fear death. What is required of us is faith. Faith that's sure, that is confident, that can get up and move and do things because it's secure and it's no longer afraid. Faith that God has promise and comfort for his people in this life and an inheritance of life forevermore. Now there's, there's a note here. And honestly, as I was reading the commentators, I was pleased to see they all went here. A note about marriage. Some here take great joy and comfort in this life, in marriage. Is Jesus really saying, I will no longer be married to my spouse in heaven? Do I really want to lose the joy of marriage? Let me first say, this is why we say the vow. Till death do us part. We affirm in the marriage vows the reality of what Jesus is saying here. Marriage is a companionship for this life. And it's a companionship for the flourishing of humanity through the gift of children. It is a gift, a companionship and a joy. But there is marriage in heaven. Revelation 21, come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. In the life that is to come, all who are united to Christ will permanently be united with him as he leads, protects, and provides for us in the marriage that we enter into in heaven. And friends, no matter what our circumstance is in this life, there is a comfort, a companionship that is for us that is filled with power and promise and forever. And we together will enter into that marriage, that companionship forever. The companionship of marriage between husband and wife in this life will give way to the companionship of marriage between God and man in the life that is to come. This is the way of all the things of the resurrection. How many times as a kid, and even as an adult, and many times, do I think, I'm, I want heaven. I want eternal life. It's just that I want this too. Right? I mean, examine our hearts. We should do another prayer of confession and just be silent for a moment. The old things pass away. It's true. They actually do. And the new comes. Do we believe it? All that was good before will shine with a new, a transformed, and in, an imperishable brilliance when it's made new. The Sadducees sought to question the authority of Jesus in our passage today. Jesus has spoken. And when he spoke, he speaks with the authority of heaven, calling uh, attention to the scriptures and the power of God. His covenant promise. But now, we who have seen the fullness of the gospel. Jesus was about to do it. Days away 
from his own resurrection. We see the fullness in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can look back and know the resurrection. We have received an even greater testimony of the power of God in his promise in the scriptures. The angel at the tomb of Jesus says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? When we look, he's not there, but he's risen from the dead. This is the ground, the surety of our hope of resurrection is Christ is risen. I am in him. My hope and inheritance is in him. My forgiveness and life is in him. We're here this morning to celebrate the the glorious resurrection of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrated on Good Friday the righteousness of the one who died in the place of sinners so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. This is the cross. This is the gospel. Today we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death as he secures resurrection life for all who repent of their sin and turn to him in faith. This is the gospel that's held out before the congregation this morning. So today I want to call you. If you have questions, perhaps you're like the Sadducees and you, you have some questions. I want you to know this. The Sadducees, like the Pharisees who came last week, they receive a bitter rebuke from Jesus. But they didn't come to him with a question. They came to him with a trap. Every time you see someone come to Jesus, they have a question, they have a need. And even those who don't even come to Jesus and he simply passes by and he turns to them, all who come to Jesus in faith are never turned away. All to come to him in a genuineness, seeking, find. If you have questions about the resurrection, don't fail at the same point of the Sadducees. Turn to the scriptures. It's interesting. There's so many arguments for the, for the resurrection and so many things that we could say today. But I think the first thing that we ought to do is give attention to the words of Jesus when he was questioned about the resurrection. If you have questions about the resurrection, turn to the scriptures and trust in the power of God. Begin there. If you'll study the Bible, you will see a trustworthy and compelling testimony about Jesus and his resurrection. You will. It's the whole point of the gospel writers to bear witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. There would be no book here if it's not the purpose for the book. You might be convinced that that their testimony is true so that all that remains for you, if you'll come to the scriptures, give attention, is to trust in the power of God, not only to raise Jesus from the dead, but to forgive you of your sin and give you everlasting life in him. Do you hear the call? Is that call for you? Give attention to the scriptures. Trust in the power of God. For all who believe, don't stop. (laughs) We often slip back into our common ways, applying common sense to things that are miraculous. People don't raise from the dead, I know. Unless God who gives life intervenes. 
we so often revert into the common, worrying about belt buckles and how our shirt is tucked in and forget to give attention to the glory of the resurrected Christ. The call is much the same. And then, if we see, if we believe, celebrate. That's the call for the people of God this morning. May the power of God that preserves your life give you a renewed fearlessness. No one can take from you what is secured by the power of God. You have nothing to fear. You can get up, you can celebrate, and you can move. This gives the believer a confidence in life that is absolutely unparalleled. There's nothing that is common that is like it. We can walk in the righteous way of the Lord even when we're opposed on every single front in the culture. We can. What can stop us? We have life. We can proclaim the truth of God with boldness because the word's true. It's true. And we can celebrate with joy because he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would confirm this to us. Give us a boldness to to walk as a people who are not afraid, but are free to celebrate with our life following after you, with our confession that we have so often wandered, with a fearlessness that we can turn to you in confession and receive forgiveness of sin, that what we have in you is secure, not even we can take it away. And give us a boldness to proclaim the glory of resurrection in a culture that that needs good news confirm this to our hearts to believe according to the word and your power so that the world might know and you might receive the celebration the praise that is due to you thank you jesus we pray these things in your resurrected name you are alive you hear your saints this morning we cry out to you and you will work on our behalf for your glory. Thank you, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.